This is the Drummers Only podcast, brought to you by the UK's leading drum store. So hello everyone, uh, Drummers Only podcast, episode number 66, and we are joined today by the wonderful and legendary Mr. Jason McGuire. Good morning to you, Jason. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Legendary. Legendary is such a big, strong word. Legendary is like, like superhero status or well, something. Well, I think you've earned it. Um, if, the, if you're listening and watching and you're new to, to Jason's playing or haven't met Jason's playing at all, he plays for the wonderful and celebrated Death Cab for Cutie. Uh, he's also played for and recorded for Tegan and Sarah, uh, Matt Nathanson, Chris Waller, who is formerly of Death Cab for Cutie, and Frank Turner, to name a few. He has his own studio called Two Sticks Audio and teaches, I believe still teaches at the Seattle Drum School. I do, yeah. I mostly teach online these days or I'll do drum shop stops and, and do privates for a day, especially if I have a day off on tour. But yeah, you can find me. Uh, easiest way to get in touch with me for lessons is... Uh, Probably just DM me on Instagram or the Seattle Drum School. They refer a lot of students to me. I um sort of first came to your playing via Modern Drummer 06, the festival. Yes. Which was amazing. I've actually just rewatched it. Um and then from there it kind of spiraled into finding Death Cab and, and big fan ever since. But just if anybody has not seen the modern drummer performance that that, that Jason does, he basically starts his solo with the snare drum and builds a kit around it which is kind of bonkersly fearless for the <laughs> biggest drum festival in the world um pretty cool what do you do when you gotta follow up ronald bruner jr <laughs> and uh you know you got glenn kochi coming up after you i mean it was um the whole point of that you know presentation and starting with the snare drum and and for for anyone that hasn't seen it like i had my drum tech there at the time and he brought out the additional pieces of the drum set um and it was you know every time a bass drum would show up or the hi-hat or a floor tom or whatever um i would add that component to my sort of intro solo but i wanted to you know i say it on the on the performance but i wanted to leave room for error i mean we were always thrown unknowns all the time in life you know whether you're driving somewhere or you're getting on a, a stage a big stage a little stage like you there's, you can plan as much as you want but <laughs> you have to be adaptable and uh that was kind of my message with that opening of that festival was like i don't know what's going to happen it doesn't matter how prepared i am anything can happen so i might as well leave something to chance and i mean yeah was the was this thing improvised or did you have a framework uh, it, there was a framework, but there was, you know, like the timing of when each of those pieces came out, <laughs> it was like, you know, I think you could see me look inside stage a few times, like to see like, Is that uh, floor time coming. I guess I'll just ramp on this a little bit more. So, I mean, I, I, yeah, it's just like tremendous. It's, it's such a great idea. I think the message is, is amazing. Um, especially with like currently with you know the whole world is obsessed with perfection and making sure that everything is presented in this really packaged way you know where we are flawless and and you know and that's what, 16 years ago 
Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's tremendous, man. So does that, that, I mean, that, do you teach that idea to people, like just kind of leaving room for good things to happen and or bad things? Absolutely. I, th- I think the more we, you know, the more we judge ourselves, the more we sort of criticize our own process, um, the more it clouds the natural good shit that comes out of us. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like they say, you know, you've probably heard the phrase first take, best take. Right. You know, a lot of times in recording, you know, when you hear a song for the first time, you're just, you're not overthinking it. You're, you're coming at it from a different place, you know, mm-hmm. instant inspiration and like, you know, ideas that aren't um, influenced by someone else's suggestions, but like purely yours. Uh, and I think that in this, you know, I mean, it, it, I would say today, but really it started 20 years ago, the ability to hit Apple Z or, you know, alt delete or whatever it is. It's so easy to just redo things that um, we're in the process of deleting ourselves constantly. Mm. And, and that's often before we really take a look mm. at what happened, you know? So mm-hmm. I like when I'm recording at home, for other people um and i have them send me tracks i will often you know ha- i have everything built in a template and good to go so really if i have a cup of coffee come downstairs in the morning all i do is hit r on my computer and i'm recording <laughs> uh-huh. and i i often will play a piece of music that i know i'm going to be working on um like i did this with frank turner stuff recently uh i just hit record before i learn the song oh wow I'm more reacted to what i was hearing and feeling and then of course i eventually was able to build and construct more of my parts you know when i'm when when i'm working with the artist though that i don't know and i don't know what they're going to do and which are they going to turn or how they phrase um to me that's a really revealing process of like finding different angles and being inspired and having that captured so more often than not, like I said, I will do a first pass, not knowing exactly what I'm going to play, but record everything mm-hmm. and then kind of go back through and take inventory of, you know, what the reaction was. I mean, mm-hmm. think about it this way. You know, if you tell a joke and you make somebody laugh, they haven't heard that joke and they smile and they laugh. It's big. It's genuine. It's very real. Mm-hmm. You tell that same joke again, you're not going to get the same. <laughs> you're not going to get the same smile. So um, I think that in the spirit of capturing very real reactions and inspiration, it's important to, to grab those moments and then take a look at them and learn from them. So again, the recording process, same thing goes for teaching. Often I don't have a set curriculum with students. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this was a lesson between you and I today. The worst thing I could do, I think, as a teacher is to have a whole preset sheet. Like, here's what we're going to work on never met you don't know what you need don't know how you learn don't know how you're going to react yet somehow i think that i've already figured it out before we (laughs) even started so um like i said uh first thought best thought addressing the the very real needs of a situation or a song or a person or whatever i think is the way to go i mean the the place i jumped to right away is it's it's not really too dissimilar to how a jazz musician plays 
and or records, you know, if if you're going into, the, you know, I, I, Mark Giuliana's a friend of yours, right? So, you know, yeah. Mark's probably played, I mean, he he did release an album that had alternate takes on it. Yeah. You know, so every time those guys take a, a, a pass at a solo, it's going to be, it could be wildly different. Yeah. You know, like they could end up half timing out of nowhere or someone could drop out. And then all of a sudden, any sort of preconceived notion of what they were going to play is going to change. Yeah, and I, I think the more you train like that, the more you sort of stress test yourself, <laughs> the, the better balance you have as a human being. You know, hmm. like it it really, it calls upon your, you know, uh, your your ability to hear. And also, in other words, if I'm playing something for the first time, I'm not going to overplay. I'm going, the emphasis is going to be on listening, right? Sure. So, and to me, that's why so many jazz guys end up being the most celebrated players or jazz guys and gals. Like I saw Allison, Allison Miller and mm -hmm. recently uh, do a jam session in the hotel lobby. And she had never played with the band before. And they just called out a tune and she's like, great. She counted off and played and, and just completely like everyone in the lobby in the hotel, like people in the balcony, everyone was like focused on what she was doing because her listening skills are so amazing. And she has great facility and technique and independence. So it was all there for. Her. So to me, I think all of us is all of us musicians, drummers need to train to be prepared for anything. The same thing if you're an athlete and you're trying to train body balance and proprioception. Mm. If you're not using that skill, it goes away, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, like I said, uh, taking it back to that modern drummer festival, that was a little bit of the, the mess, which is like, I, I feel like I'm a more genuine player um, if I'm, you know, coming from a place that is hyper aware and listening than a pre-programmed preset player that being said <sighs> i do take i do take time to prepare my parts you know when it comes to composing and coming up with things for death cab songs mm -hmm. like i said the biggest evolution comes from sort of unplanned events i've listened quite a bit now to the new record it's absolutely mega um so the new death cab a record has just come out called Asphalt Meadows. Um, it's pretty different, huh? It's a, it's a, it's sonically, it's a bit of a. I'm not going to say departure because I think that's. I don't know even know what that means, but it, it's. It feels like it's a different record from anything you've made before. I think so, probably. But I mean, a lot of that has to do with uh, John Congleton, who produced it and engineered mm -hmm. it, you know, and his sort of signature thing. Um, and and his production style is is wildly different than Rich Costi, who who actually was did that Frank Turner record that I played on. Um, but Rich's style is more evident on the two records prior to mm -hmm. Meadows. So um, Kintsugi and Thank You for Day was that producer, and then before those albums was all self or not self produced, but Chris Walla, mm -hmm. who no longer in Death Cap was pretty much at the helm of everything up until that point. So to me, there's three different sort of signature sounds, or if you can call them signature, but three very different sounding records. Um, but I, I don't know, it's hard for me when I'm so close to things to 
to describe the differences between the sounds of our records necessarily but i'd be curious what you mean by that what you when you say that very different more textural you know and some of it's like wall of sound stuff mm -hmm. um so, you know there's a there's a, a, a difference in the writing as well i think that you know over the course since chris left the band and stuff the, the writing has changed um and it's it's, it's great to hear because it, it, it gets the band is still evolving um, mm -hmm. Which I think is really important for for musicians to to keep yeah. to keep going, you know. Um, I, I, I've 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 often thought that, and what I've got some questions about this that your your part construction is is sensational. Like watching you play live, I've seen you play live three times in Glasgow now, and it's like a free drum lesson every time I get to go. Um, but it feels like that those things aren't secondary to the way the record sounds now but they're like maybe if there's a, a, a variance in the bass drum part over the course of four bars it's buried in the mix a little bit more and and this sonic thing is, is taking precedence yeah i mean i i definitely take my um time considering the evolution of parts and, and long phrases and you know sometimes my phrase is developed subtly over the course of an entire verse or an entire chorus or an, or the bridge or whatever there are what seems like repetition i think to most if you if you're if you're really listening deeply might be revealed as an evolution over the course of like i said several bars yeah um maybe that's just in the hi-hat variation maybe that's in the bass drum maybe that's in the stacking or or adding of ghost notes throughout the course of a phrase but um I definitely have that's something I've been considering much like a journey like a landscape I've talked about in other interviews like you're on a road trip and you're looking out the window and you know or you're on a tour bus and the landscape changes it's seldom mm. the same and for me I find that interesting as a as a texture to to sort of consider as a player like how can I change the landscape of not only this section of a song but the length of you know over the course of the whole tune like dynamically technically sometimes i will start by playing the bass drum off of the head and in the verses i'll dig in you mm -hmm. know a little more and then by the end of the song i'm playing the bass drum as hard as i can just because <laughs> i want a different sort of emotional intensity when i you know to come across um yeah i don't know if i got sidetracked from your question uh, there. no uh, i'll come back to the because I've got a whole thing about parts and stuff that I, I want to talk about because there's so much to dive in. But what I was thinking about was with the way that the new record is, sounds, does that affect things like even what drums you use or, or what you're going for? Because if you listen to something like Rand McNally and how that sounds and then Foxglove, like, <laughs> there, there's, like what Foxglove has just like drums right front and centre of the mix, like old school drum sound almost like we we first learned to do where we close mic a kit and it's like right there and then other tunes it's like way back and it's compressed and it's got effects on it so how does how does that work for you guys well it's funny typically like if if you go back to so my first record with death cab was transatlanticism mm. 2003 um and everything thereafter up until this record I have always showed up in the studio with a ton of gear. So <laughs> for, you know, I, I probably use six different kits on transatlanticism. And wow. I think I, 
And I think I used a different kit for every song on plans. <laughs> There's a photo in a book um, by a photographer named Autumn DeWild where she she took a she took a picture of everything I had, I think, laid out on the floor. And she's like a long ways away. And you just see this like sea of snare drums, you know, <laughs> up to me. But um, I have a lot of equipment because I want a lot of different textures and sounds. And I, I mean, sure, you could take a drum and you could tune it multiple ways and you can use overlays and, you know, uh, you can change microphones, you can change microphone distance, you can change your rooms, you can change your approach, you can change your sticks, you can change, you know, your technique. There's so many ways to take a single drum and make it sound like a dozen. Mm -hmm. um, and up until this album, I was doing that and I was you know shipping a ton of gear i would never show up to a studio with less than 10 snare drums wow. but on asphalt meadows um i used one drum set and one snare drum no every, no for, come on for, hold on for every song except for one which was Rand mcnally which is funny that you pointed out so Rand mcnally so i will say the one kit that i used for the whole album was um a Gretsch broadcaster, a new one, 13, 16, 22. There's photos of it online. Um, and the snare drum was a six and a half phosphorus bronze, which is oh. a which is an amazing drum. Yeah. Uh, favorite all-time snare drum. Also the heaviest drum I think I've ever owned at 20. <laughs> um, but it can it has a massive range. And for Rand McNally, I used a 20-inch broadcaster bass drum with a single head and a um, brooklyn standard snare mm. drum with an overlay like a big fat snare drum um the black hole sun model overlay uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that was it everything else was the same drum set so really what varied is approach you know like i would change my stick size i would um, tune it slightly differently i would play it differently we'd, we'd move and shift mics around but basically you got to think of to me this instrument because we don't have notes because we're not playing scales per se mm -hmm. you know not changing keys um we need to really work hard and dig deep into the sound of our instrument and so many people fail to do that they show up in the studio and, or even live they don't they don't change so much with it so if you've seen me live you've probably seen a little bit of that approach like song for song mm -hmm. it can change to me that's a whole that that is the difference between uh like how can i put it just like just like making a song what it is like i could take i could have played everything on asphalt meadows with with the wrong approach literally mm -hmm. like played, played a song too hard oversaturated the room you know blew up the mic priest and it would not have it would not work out it would not be the same song Rand McNally played super quiet, barely off the head. You know, I played the 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 thing that did change a little bit was cymbals. So I used Zildjian L80s for hi hats. <laughs> really? On Rand McNally, and I wow. used a, the um, Crash of Doom, twenty inch Crash of Doom. For <laughs> but I knew that, like, given the tempo of that song and and the 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 height that I was going to be playing, like literally two or three inches off of every surface, mm -hmm. the way that I was going to be playing. I communicated with John, you know, the producer and engineer and said, you need to gain up your mics because this is what I'm going to be doing. And the magic of this drum sound is only going to be revealed by you, you know, gaining up the mics 
and us moving the microphones in closer and me barely playing. If I move beyond that threshold, it's ruined. The bass drum's not going to be as cool. It's not going to be big and round. Those L80 hats are going to be too bright and crispy and weird. So what we need to do is we need to capitalize on my approach with the right pairing of microphones to get my point across. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. And I have done that with every song uh, for as long as I've been playing drums. I've really thought about this song needs to have me crushing the drums. Mm. Like, you know, the the first track on the record. Um, I don't know how, how I survived. Yeah. Like, I'm bashing the shit out of it. <laughs> And same with Foxglove to an extent. I, I really needed to dig in there, but Pepper is not that way. Mm. Um, so yeah, throughout the whole catalog, I could talk about each song having an individual approach. And sometimes that was a stick choice. Sometimes that was a fulcrum choice, how far up I held on the stick. Sometimes that was a swapping out a bass drum beater to something that had more feel and less attack. Um, but again, I'm like, I feel like a, a mechanic back here who's trying to tune up a race <laughs> for a specific race. And sometimes that's going fast. Sometimes it's going slow. Sometimes it's going off-road. Was that approach something that you've always had in your life or is it something you learned? I don't know. Honestly, I can't think that, I don't think anyone ever told me about it. It's just something that I considered. Mm -hmm. it, probably, it probably stems from like just being a kid that always, like to build things and take them apart and like Legos and models and like figuring out how things work and having like sort of a mechanical mind, um, paying attention to the world, paying attention to textures, mm. and listening deeply to music and trying to close my eyes and like envision what the person looked like who was playing drums. <laughs> yeah. How hard were they hitting? Like, were they smiling? Were they sad? Yeah. Were they um, were they in love? Were they were they depressed? Like what what was the approach behind? I mean, you can think about that with classical composers too. You know, you could go back to uh, you know Rachmaninoff and Franz Liszt, and like mm -hmm. read about what was going on in their life. You can literally find out that information today, and you hear the music, and you're like, that makes sense to me. That yeah, totally yeah. Makes sense. yeah. To me, I deeply feel this instrument, and uh, you know, sometimes I'm excited, sometimes I barely want to play. I mean, it really here, it really comes through. And it, but what surprises me more is that it's such a unique approach. I don't know if, in my collection of music, of, of any other drummer that approaches it that way. Now, like people approach songs individually. Sure, each song on a record is a different thing, but. I don't know if if anyone's doing it to that level of detail, you know, on their instrument specifically. Yeah, on, um, drum, on drum set, you know. I think there are. We just, I mean, it's hard. To, it's not. It's the kind of thing that you don't pick up on from other drummers unless you're really listening a lot to them or deeply. Like somebody that I picked up on that from is like Brian Blade. Mm. I mean, Mark Giuliano does it as well. Like Mark has a lot of power, and at the same time, he can play feather light and fast and. Yeah, but like, well, I mean, getting into the nitty gritty of tuning it per song, moving the mics, changing up. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like each song is, it's a, like a blank slate. We've got a new song. We wipe the board clean. Where are we starting? Well, part. I mean, a big reason I can do that and I approach it that way is because I'm an engineer. Because right. I, I, I know that like, 
of the six bass drum mics that are in my studio right now, I could tell you what they all do well and what they don't do well. Okay. Tell you of the the eight different flavors of mic pre, which <laughs> ones are more colorful and which ones are more transparent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we all can, if you're going to paint a room, you have an idea of what color it should be. So if I'm going to play a part for a song, I have an idea of what color or texture or sound or presence it should have. Whereas I could choose the wrong thing in a way that you never scream into somebody's ear, I love you and expect them to (laughs) be cool with it. Um, So I'm never, for me, it happened probably, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago that I, I realized that like, okay, there's a couple paths to go about as a drummer here. There's three. You could just play drums and not care about anything. I just play drums. Practice when I want to practice. Sometimes I don't practice. I'm just going to be a drummer. Mm-hmm. Or you could be like, I'm going to be, I'm going to pursue speed and technique and chops. And I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to play as many notes around the kit as possible. Odd times, I'm going to be a monster. Then there's also the path of like, I care about sound and composition. Mm-hmm. And like for me, I would rather if if you give me if you say you have two hours every day to work on one of those things, like are you going to work spend two hours working on a pad and like playing to a metronome at mock speed, or are you going to spend um, a couple hours like working on sound design, if you will? To me, I would rather spend time finding the right sound and approach for something than bettering my technique mostly because i don't think that i've ever been i've never had that propensity i've never been a guy that can keep up with ronald bruner jr so why bother? why bother you know? um or a thomas lang or you know or even a weckle like you know i'm i'm more of the the fan of i admire the hell out of drummers that have a ton of chops but my biggest heroes are the ones that have great sound and great feel and great feel also can come from a great sound mm-hmm. yeah. you know there's there's long and there's short notes like which ones do you play what's appropriate i was listening to your um your big fat snare drum top five and you've that comes across like talking about jackie Leibsight and, and bonham and, and how these people gave you different things i think that really comes across as well you know like it's not theft but you can hear the influence of all these different things you know because you're not it's not verbatim you're not playing anything out verbatim but you you're quite happy to be it feels like you're quite happy to be led by something like that and go explore it yourself yeah yeah i mean i we're supposed to learn from our masters and then change you know learn from the masters and change the way they do change the way you're doing with that approach how does one then take that out live on tour for months uh live is harder um because you don't have because you do have one drum set and one right. set of mic. yeah so to me it's a it's a um it's an economical version of changing <laughs> um you i mean you have to do more with less right mm-hmm. and it honestly it, it's it's been really hard for me to over the years to not have those choices for instance if i write a part for a song where i'm playing feather quiet like super low um it doesn't work live it doesn't come across sure let's say that i develop my um 
the pattern is based on the dynamic and the tuning and whatever. Like for instance, there's a song called Kids Kids in '99 from the Blue EP. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've heard it or not, but it's a really cool intricate drum part that very much leads it's like the feature on the track and what it what it requires is like a super high tuned snare drum dead and muted with a i used a distortion broken distortion pedal i think i have it here somewhere in it it sat on top of the the snare drum head and it had broken bits in it so it rattled (laughs) and i used a uh like a, a Vic Firth root in one hand and a SD4 in the other. Wow. You know, for anyone that doesn't know, that's the lightest, smallest drumstick you can get pretty much. Mm-hmm. And so the groove was dependent on a certain dynamic approach and setting up the drums that way. And when I try and do that part live, I had to alter it. I had to right. play it with, had to do something that came across because if I just did my thing, which for a while I brought out that just broken distortion pedal and I tried to use those sticks, none of my bandmates could feel it on stage. They're like, can you play harder? Okay. And so I had to find a different approach that worked and come up with the live version. So um, there's a few songs in the catalog that really work quite seamlessly in terms of what I did in the studio works well live. But there are also some songs where, all right, I need a different approach. I almost need a, a different instrument mm-hmm. or I have to use what I have on stage. Um, that being said, majority of what we did on Asphalt Meadows has been um, exactly the same thing. Like my approach in the studio mm-hmm. is what. I, and I've been cognizant of that, like more aware, like when I'm in the studio recording, like how's this going to work live and then trying to find. Uh, a place in the middle where you know it's a dynamic that's going to carry over yeah but yeah it's like one thing to record it in the studio the next thing to play at red rocks yeah where it's just going to go out this out there's not even a roof you know so and it's hard it's really i mean like psychologically you need to get over that like i just played we just uh recorded a bunch of songs acoustic and i i mean i i don't think i use sticks i used brushes and pallets and everything was like this far off of the surface and played <laughs> super super quiet and then a week later i went and played at a radio festival in front of seventeen thousand people and i was just slamming like my hands are cramping up because i hadn't played that hard hard in a while and it was yeah. just the system but the biggest hurdle to get over the big the most difficult part of it was psychologically not like screwing up you know yeah, like right, yeah. telling myself this is okay and this is the approach for this environment mm-hmm. you know headroom if we were playing at a coffee shop or like <laughs> a quiet you know in a symphony hall where everything was bouncing right back in your face i wouldn't have taken that approach yeah and again this all leads back to preparing yourself with sort of stress testing for changing your approach no matter what the environment is you need to be adaptable and i've been i've seen drummers and studios and situations where they get asked to do something that they're uncomfortable doing and the whole day falls apart literally producer will be like uh we're gonna move on to a different song because they're now they're in this like vicious cycle and mental trap of like feeling inadequacy not being able to be adaptable as a player and again it doesn't matter how many hours a day you practice your chops if you can't or how fast your hands are. If you can't adapt in that situation, check your ego 
and do what needs to be done, then you're not going to be playing very long. No, it's kind of like having a conversation, right? Like you can only talk about sport. Yeah. And somebody wants to talk about, you know, cooking. Yeah. Like, well, I, I can't talk about that. I can only talk about football. Like, well, it's going to be a pretty, pretty quick conversation. Yeah, exactly. How did the tour go? Curiously, just because I've got a ticket for, for March, so I'm looking forward to seeing you guys again. So, Arrowlands? Yep. It'll be great. Um, it's gone really well. I think that taking a few years off because of the pandemic and making a record really made us both thankful and crave, you know, playing in front of people again, sharing music with people and grateful for each other. And I mean, it's just uh, everyone is is um, flowing every night without any real judgment. You know, we're just happy to be back out there. And I think that people were psyched to see live music um, again. And uh, the songs, like I said, everything that, that we recorded for for um, Asphalt Metals has, has translated really well. Like we haven't, like the, the live show sounds like the record. Great. We're not stuff. And um, backing up just a little bit, you had talked about how the, the writing has still managed to evolve and, you know, mm -hmm. things have a sound. Um, I should, I just want to share that like over the course of the pandemic, the way that we recorded and wrote um, Asphalt Meadows is we did kind of a musical telephone uh, <sighs> game where one band member would start an idea on a Monday and right. then they'd pass it to the next band member on a Tuesday and then the the next member had like full editorial control to do whatever they wanted. So if I got a bass part and I thought that, yeah, I'm tired of four, four, I'm going to change this to seven, eight. I could do that. I could lob off an eighth note. Or if I wanted to speed it up or slow it down, I could do that and add drums. And then I would pass it to the next band member who could then do whatever they wanted. <laughs> on, and they could nix my drum part play another drum part if they wanted wow that didn't happen very often but like <laughs> it did happen and so by the time friday came around the last band member would have mixed it and added their parts or maybe they didn't add any parts at all they did was mix it and they would present it to the rest of the band so no one knew what was going to happen until the end of the week and every monday somebody different started and the order would be changed around so in wow. the past Ben has always written kind of the lion's share of the, the the demos and the songs, and we kind of tool them out in the studio together. But um, so much more of this album was created through that process where the embryo or the seed of the song came from somebody other than Ben, or Ben would start it and he would have no control with the rest of it. And it was a fascinating process, and not every song came out the other end great. You know, it was funny. <laughs> Well, that was a that was an interesting experiment, um, but it did give us a ton of material that we sadly had to whittle down and like make decisions about what a lot of songs are going to make the record. There's probably three or four albums worth of fully recorded material, but we chose, you know, collectively our favorite songs. But that process of like everybody getting the day to do whatever they want without any influence from you know, our, our spouses, you know, like, <laughs> because how many people are in a relationship and they're just set in their ways yeah, right. and they don't ask for things that they need, or, you know, they argue about something that they're just used to arguing about. And 
I'm not saying we don't get along. It wasn't that. It was because of the pandemic that we were separated, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we would have been in a room trying to write. But this somehow provided more wiggle room and creativity and um, just a different approach overall. The Such a cool way to write a record. It was great. It was, it was, I mean, thankfully, the like in this day and age, being able to have a home studio that's legit is not obtainable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's easy to do or uh, it, it makes it obtainable. Um, so people can sound good and pass it on, you know. Yeah, I was gonna say because if for give me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first record where there's tunes that are in odd times, like ones in seven and ones in three. Ones in five. Oh, ones in five. Okay. I, I, there's, you know, there's, there's sort of a six-four feel on one, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Well, there's early on there was like on the first Death Cab record there was some odd times, but right. like in a section, like a bridge of a song. But yeah, I, I think you got to be careful when you throw in odd times because either people will hear that for what it is, or they'll 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 be. Um, they won't realize what's happening, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, with the title track, Asphalt Meadows, it's at 5-4. I'm just drawing a straight line through with a backbeat. So mm-hmm. that carries over into the chorus. So really, it doesn't matter. You don't have to tap your foot in five. You could tap it in 2-4 or 4-4, four, four, and you're mm-hmm. still not going to lose your place in the song. So, yeah. but yeah, had that writing process not developed the way that it did, I don't think that, I don't think there would be odds on the record. <laughs> But none, like none of it feels super drummy. It just feels super, it feels great. It just feels good, you know. It's and it's it's kind of nice to hear on a popular record that you guys can sneak that in the back door. It it is snuck in for sure. You know I mean, mean dangerous territory to be thrown. <laughs> um, yeah, I want to talk about park construction because one of the, the 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 big things for me about your playing has always been that like you just create parts that. I don't know who would come up with that. Like, if you take something like Kath, that could have just been to get it. Could have been so simple, but no. There's this tom groove with a bell, and on bar four, you don't hit the hi hat twice; you hit it once. And just like, where does that even come from? Well, that and and that particular song. Let me back up. The something I learned when in one of my very first bands was to take suggestions let your guard down and not be so you know boneheaded that you only wanted to get your point across um i played in a band years ago with someone that was a really creative programmer and um this person is no longer in a band but they at the time they were heavily into you know music and writing and he this guy would program the most angular weird <laughs> drum parts and I would have to make sense of them or I would want to. I like, mm. I chose like, how can I, you know, you, you know, you programmed and then you wrote a whole song around this. Like you phrase your guitar and your vocal around this weird angular pattern. Can I make that happen on the drum set. Mm-hmm. And that called upon a lot of independence mm-hmm. and a lot of polyrhythmic sort of approaching because obviously when you have somebody programming, they're not worried about, they're not, they don't have physical limitations, right? Yeah. They're not trying to, cross arms or you know separate hands and feet so that happened like back in like 96 or 97 that i started trying to recreate program drums and so um 
fast forward into Death Cab, Ben is also a great drummer. And he he's come up with some great drum hooks, but they've been very like like two bars. Like they boxed like what Sarah said. What's the the root of what Sarah said was like the first measure of what I play. Right. And my phrase ended up being eight bars long yeah. based on and Kath was a similar thing. Kath was like a boom, boom, ka, boom, something as simple as that that ben did and he wrote a song around just that boom boom god boom psh, psh, god and i was like all right well how can i turn this into a more interesting drum part and then it evolved from there those are two examples but um most of what i'm trying to do when i sit down and play the drums is every time i play a song i want it to be different or something a slight variation on what anyone else has ever heard yeah if if it's a if it's a kick on one and a snare on three, what can I do with the hi hat that makes it different than anything well, that's else? That's just what I was going to say. You you treat the hi hat like its own instrument. Yeah, well, the the left foot and the hi hat in itself. I mean, there's so many textures in there, like like a song like "I'll Possess Your Heart" or "Grapevine Fires." If I if you took away the hi hat pedal, they would not be the drum parts that they are today. Yeah, like have the independence. It's there depending on how hard you step on that pedal changes the character of your hi-hat. Mm -hmm. So like maybe measure one, I put more pressure on the hi-hat for a tighter sound. And maybe at the end of measure two, I dropped my heel and, and, you know, lift a little weight on the front of my foot and it changes the sound of the hi-hat, the spread of those symbols. And then I add some accents, like all that kind of textural stuff has to be in there as long as there's an anchor of time like a drum hook yeah right you know drum hook or the backbeat that is, that is always in the expected place but again this all comes from like i said we're so limited right i've got a four-piece kit i don't have notes i don't have scales so for me how can i make you know eight eight notes sound like <laughs> a how, how can the hi-hat become a melody mm -hmm. that's kind of the question right like what can you do to lyrically phrase your drum parts so that you're saying something mm -hmm. one of the guys actually asked me to ask you about i will possess your heart and he because he wanted to know what the, the kind of recording process was because he's he feels like he says when he listens to it, it sounds like it was a jam but was it improvised or was it constructed you know where those fills are and things you know like and it's like eight and a half minutes long yeah well that song was played through four times and it was played to tape. And when Chris came in the studio, it was my studio, my commercial studio that I had built. Um, the first thing he did is he took the computer monitor and he put it, he unplugged it and he put it up high on a shelf. He's like, I don't want to see anything. I don't want to see any waveforms. I just want to listen. And let's just play like playing in a room. And so all we could all we wanted to do was play that song four times through given <laughs> <laughs> it was a jam and <laughs> to really get like really nerdy the drum set was there's actually a video out there you can find it of me recording i'll possess your heart um angela angela kendall was the person who was filming at the time she also filmed tegan and sarah mm -hmm. documentary that i played on uh, um the con mm -hmm. but you can see me playing. I'm playing with SD4s. I'm I'm barely playing. Like 
these are marching sticks here, but I'll just show you like on my knee, like I'm playing this hard. Wow, okay. That is as hard as I'm playing, except for the fills, I get on a little bit more. The drums are super dry. All the drums are mic'd with SM57s going through an old film tube mixer called a MagnaSync. And it's like a four microphones in and one mono out. And that wow. it's most mostly a mono drum kit with a couple other mics for support just to to beef up the the sound a little bit more. But it's like a lo-fi vibe, playing to tape, no click. Mm -hmm. Uh like if you try and map that out to a click, it's 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 hard to do. Um but like that that presentation I was like how can i how can i kind of take the the you know jackie Liebzi approach how can i sound like i'm in germany in 1972 with this <laughs> especially with this you know where the bass part was so repetitive it's the same bass part same bass line for the whole thing except for the bridge mm -hmm. that's it um so how can i be the one that's moving around and creating more melody and more of a landscape I want to, I want to sound excited. I want to push. I want to pull. There's that is all over that track. It's very imperfect, but it has a thing, right? It has kind of a groove. Mm. But again, if I didn't come from the approach of how quietly and low I was playing it, um, that mono sort of lo-fi drum sound, and then that hi-hat foot, you know, popping out in there on the uh of the. on the uh of two <laughs> yeah um, every other bar yeah. like it in those and when i'm doing the fills i don't want it there's no cymbal crashes right mm -hmm. the fill just kind of is a, an over the bar fill that ends and no cymbal crash and then the next thing you hear is the backbeat all very conscious choices of approach right you could play any piece of music multiple ways on a drum set what is your approach and does that work though that's that's what it boils down to mm -hmm. is it the right sound is it the right feel um if i'd played eighth notes on that song it wouldn't have worked it's all quarter notes mm -hmm. that changes the feel entirely so did you like did when you played it through four times did you do anything different or was it the same kind of approach like you never tried to play it with eighth notes for example no i knew what i wanted to do my part pretty right. much there, I mean, there were variations in the the kick drum pattern, probably. Mm -hmm. I don't think you could line up all four takes, in other <laughs> words. It would definitely not be the same thing. But uh, I think that most of what I did was a reaction to what the rest of the band was doing. And then also having a little more freedom and phrasing with my bass drum pattern because Nick was doing the exact same bass part. Mm -hmm. So like bass drum and the bass line didn't need to lock in. Mm -hmm. So it's if like if you were to transcribe the whole thing you'd stand back when you're done and look at it and be like wow there's not a lot of repeating of bass drum phrases in here it seems to be all over the map but that's because like i said the bass player did the same thing all the way through so there was no need to do that i was meandering all over the place <laughs> but the backbeat is in the same place yeah, yeah right you know so to then you have you've got to go away and learn it to play it live uh the live version we have is not too different but it has evolved over the years mm -hmm. into like its own thing so when you see you know when we come through in march and you see i'll possess your heart this is also goes back to that me saying or stating 10 or 15 minutes ago like sometimes the studio approach doesn't always work live yeah, right. and you have 
conversion. So, but I mean, I find that interesting. I don't want to go see a band that I've spent, you know, however many hours listening to the record and have it be exactly the same experience. I want something different. Yeah, I, I agree. I grew up uh, with grunge music, so I'm just early 40s, so I grew up with, like, Jimmy Chamberlain was my guy, The Pumpkins, and, and going to see those guys, it's like a show. It's it's people playing music, and there's live versions through the eyes of rupees, like, 25 minutes long, and there's the, a whole jammed-out section, and it's just like, that's what I'm buying a ticket for. There's a whole, like I said, I, I, I pretty much bring my brain right back to the approach of literally everything we've done, and it... Sometimes in the moment, it doesn't make sense. Sometimes your bandmates are like, uh, okay, well, you need time to do, <laughs> you know, you're going to stretch a bed sheet over your bass drum head. I'm like, but there's a reason for it, you know? It's, it's, when I heard Sarah for the first time, it's like, and I, I eventually read your modern drummer interview about how you played the, 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 the coda and the outro of that song. It's like, who even thinks to flip a rudiment? Add a flam on, orchestrate it between two two pieces of the kit, and play it at like double piano. Well, but that's that comes exactly from where you're at. You know that, right? Mm -hmm. Of course. That's, that's Alex Duthert. That's that's like all the study I did with the Scottish guys, Jim Kilpatrick, and I mean, currently Stephen McWhorter. You know, yeah. like like those guys your guys own the world of technique and so few drum set players are aware of how much texture there is and how much swing and how much potential there is in uh, scottish rudiments um, same with the Swiss. but i had i not studied scottish drumming you know uh 25 years ago the end of what sarah said that outro would have never existed that was just an exercise that's all it was. But that approach, here's where here I'll, I'll make connection here. What he what Ben is singing at the end of what Sarah said is who's going to watch you die? Who's going to watch you die? Who's going to watch you die? Right. Thinking about those moments, if you put yourself in an ICU and you're you're next to somebody that you're just it's an unknown, like how long are you breathing? How long are you you know, when is this going to pass? Like that's like an infinite suspension of time. There's not a lot of dynamic shifting in that thought process if you put your head in that space. And, you know, somebody said something to me years ago listening to a um, Sonny Rollins record with the Coltrane sort of band playing with him, which was Elvin Jones, McCoy Tyner, and... Um, Paul Chambers, um, I think. No, it was... Um, was it Jim, Garrison? Jimmy Garrison, yeah. Harrison, yeah, but they're playing um, East Broadway Rundown, and there's a section in the tune towards the end where um, the old the old timer told me it was actually Greg Keplinger. He's like, "Listen to that." We were listening in his house. He's like, "Listen to that," and I was like, "It sounds like they're just doing the same thing." He's like, "Exactly." He's like, "It's <laughs> like, it's like it's just a warm breeze just blowing. Just you don't want to move. You you just want to stand right there and let the wind keep blowing and hitting you." And I was thinking about the end of what Sarah said and like what I would feel if I was in the room watching somebody slowly pass away, what would I do? Would I move? Would I get up? Would I be walking around? I would sit in one place and I would just let it come to me. And the end of that section, I was like, all I want to do is play the same thing over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. How can I make it interesting, but repetitive? 
And the only changes that happen are like there's certain dynamic shifts. So emotionally as lyrics, the piano changes, the piano or the guitar, you know, enters as the piano fades. Like that's when I make dynamic shifts in my playing, but the part stays the same. And again, this goes back to that landscape idea of like emotionally, what do you feel, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, but thank you, Scottish drumming, you know? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, some of those boys, have you seen Jim do the double stroke roll with one hand? I have, yeah. That's I'm, yeah. Terrifying, right? Yeah. You're so lucky, man. Does uh, I, I'm, it blows my mind? John Fisher, who I studied with for years and years, who played in Shots and Dykehead, mm-hmm. um, with Jim and Alex Duthard, he's the only kit player that I've met who's a Scottish drummer. Um, but I, I'm sure there are plenty over there. Alex, are... um, Alex, son John is a customer of ours. Yeah, yeah. He, he's actually a Gretsch man as well. He plays Gretsch, so he's got. Really? Yeah, he's he's got a. He bought um, the old the Gretsch hey, Alex, did a. Alex, son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, I want to meet him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, when you come over in March, if you've got a day, I can hook that up. I mean, this book. Yeah, right. I've got that somewhere as well. It's just. Yeah, no, I mean it's. I would love, I would love to meet him. Yeah, I don't know if we'll have how much extra time, but even just to sit down for coffee. I mean, I. It is a, I feel like an absolute beginner, you know, um, combing over a lot of those compositions that Duthert wrote. I mean, I can play a few, but, uh, it has been a, it has been a, a major part of my playing and development. Um, you know, obviously in the world of technique but the textures and what translates on the kit. And I knew that Alex was a, was a fan of jazz and American, you know, drummers behind the kit. Um, but I didn't know if he actually played, but. Uh, I'm not sure if he, if he played kit, but his son, John does. He, he very much plays kit, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of, it's a funny thing over here because it's not as celebrated as much as it should be. Like you, you go to the states and there's like a marching band at every game and and it's a big deal. Here, it's kind of like ah, it's so weird. Yeah, well, I somebody sent me a clip recently of McWhorter in a pub somewhere, mm. and it it seemed like, <laughs> you know, there was like fifteen people or something, and most of them clearly his friends and they applauded. He just got up and did a solo and, and, you know, he played a whole fanfare and, and like, I'm riveted watching <laughs> this 13 time world champion yeah, play. Right. But yeah, the local, like everyone in the pub was like, Oh, that was great. Let's, yeah. uh, what do you want to do? And it was like, what? Yeah. To me, celebrated, but, uh, <laughs> Maybe because it's just been part of your culture for so long that, I mean, you recognize it as a player. Yeah, for for but... sure. And and like you say, we've had customers who come in in that world and they put a pair of sticks in their hand on a pad. And it's just like holy shit! Like, yeah, like what? Like, hang on! Like, come back, come back! Like forty bars and start again, so we can swallow it. But it's I, I don't know if it's because you know it's a bit a bit kind of. Twee's the wrong word for people, but it's it's very touristy. Put your kilt on, and there's some bagpipes and a boy with a snare drum. You know, it it, it can feel a bit like that. Um, but we still host the world championships every year and things. You know, when I saw, like, I saw that. Um, uh, what's what's Stevens Band again? Inverary. What's the? Oh, I can't remember. How, uh, I'll find out whilst we're we're talking. 
possessed. Anyway, I saw like a. I was watching the other day like a top secret drum corps, you know, performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I bounced over to the to um, Stephen's band doing the. Um. Uh, what they won the worlds with this past year, you know, the piece that they played, and it was like no comparison like who who's the better core who's the better group and having just been to PASIC and watched a lot of those kids in competition here in the u.s doing the drum corps stuff it's just i mean there's some great players but even though like the blue devils like it's such a different approach mm. right? so much more heavy-handed and like forceful in their rudiments and they're playing and you know i think of my approach on the drum set what i choose to play for certain death cab songs that that i want to have a real intimate presence in and i i see a, a straighter line to what the scottish drumming influence can provide than if i was a drum corps guy playing the thickest sticks on kevlar heads you know yeah it's a very it's very american the drum corps i don't mean that to be disparaging it's just very kind of in your face and there's a little more swing in the scottish stuff and there's a little bit for want of a better phrase, a little bit more romance in it. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. You know, yeah. I, I mean... There's a bravado in American drumming that... <laughs> yeah, but there's a, there's also actual world history in the Scottish stuff because it was a war instrument and it was... A, it was a lot of these rudiments were out to... There were field calls to tell soldiers what to do and that kind of thing, you know. I mean, can you imagine a set of drummers and a set of pipers coming over the hill? you know you're ready to fight and like ah thanks guys we'll just go home yeah (laughs) you know it's it's it's, there's something in that you know um steven plays for inverary and district right yeah so inverary is about 90 minutes drive from glasgow from where we are so it's a lovely little village very beautiful like in between edinburgh and no completely the other way it's west so Edinburgh's oh, east, so Inverary is west, sort of northwest. Okay, I see, I see, I see. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful little village um, on the water, very much kind of very Scottish, you know. And that. I can't wait to stop in. Yeah, man. Time. Lastly, given that A, you used to work in a drum store, B, mm-hmm. we are a drum store, and C, you love gear, we should probably talk about gear. Yeah, what do you want to know? Well, I mean, over the course of how long I've watched the band for, your sound has changed. You know, you're you're playing very different drums than when Transatlanticism was was being toured and and that kind of thing. You know, you've come like I watched your video today on Zildjian, and you talk about coming home and just what are you looking for sonically these days? You know, what do you want to get from gear? When I um. Well, I mean, being a drum shop guy, you know this all too well. We're we're switching gears often. We, something new, a new product is introduced, or we would go through phases where maybe a drum company uh, introduces a new line. You're like, man, I am all in. I mm-hmm. this is my, you know, whether that's Yamaha or the Tama Babinga or you know a Gretsch kit or a Ludwig kit or a Craviato kit or whatever. They're all different animals. When I first started playing with Death Cab. I went from playing 
you know, smaller, more local club shows to all of a sudden being in a band that was playing larger rooms. So I was like, well, I got to have big gear. So I played <laughs> up to a 26 inch bass drum. And, you know, I used literally 2002s, Peisty 2002s, oh, yeah. orange ride, 15 inch hats, 18, 20 inch crashes. And I wanted to really fill sort of the rock band space. And what I realized is the more I kind of went into big, heavy, loud instruments or in terms of building that sound for myself the more i missed where i had come from which was more of, of being a fan of vintage gear mm -hmm. and uh darker drier symbols and so i've kind of done this full circle of like you know my i still have my first kit which is a 1965 ludwig black oyster um and i have Don't be no no, like I'll just grab the tom and bring it over. Oh, man. that? Jesus, this is special. Oh wow, look at that! So that is gorgeous. Yeah. It's sixty-five, um, and I have a thirteen, sixteen, eighteen, twenty-two. Wow, this kit, and um, that that was kind of my first love affair with with drum sounds. And this kit actually belonged to a friend of mine, and it was given to him by his uncle. And um, I would go and I was just playing snare drum in sixth grade and I would go to his house and like he had this kit for three years and I would get to play at it. <laughs> to me, that was the beginning. That was like that 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 was a drum. That was a drum sound. That was a drum kit. That was the feel that represented what I wanted to do. But then the next kit I had was like a Pearl Export because <laughs> because of advertising yeah, and right. being in a shop window and. I just quickly left like like the true organic drum sound <laughs> or you know what the world told me that I needed to play. And then from there I went from Pearl to you know a, a nicer model of Pearl to um uh Tama uh to Yamaha. I had a Yamaha 9000 series kit for a while because I was influenced by everyone and you know from Peter Erskine and Dave Weckl and mm -hmm. Uh, Vinny Kaliuta and all those like yeah. big heavy we listened to. I went through the Yamaha phase and then I went to Ayat. Wow. Okay. And, and then I wound up back at Ludwig, but it was all the new Ludwigs, but none of the new Ludwigs could do what the old Ludwig did. But I just had to play what the company wanted me to play when I was on tour. That's what I started Death Cab with. And then um, I went to Craviato because it was such a unique instrument um and the snare drums are incredible and when johnny passed away <clears throat> wanting to make a change because i was really there for him more than anything else and i tried out a gretch kit and i had always sort of steered away from gretch because of both brand loyalty and this sort of taboo because i knew that gretch drums were were an incredible instrument mm -hmm. but if i went there early on i knew that whoever i was with i would leave them for this this yeah. new and uh, as soon as I got a drum kit from Gretsch, it was a broadcaster. And I was like, I get it. I totally get it now. I understand why so many players for so many years have used this, this company. Um, like the bass drum is exactly what I have always dreamed of a bass drum feeling and sounding like. And now I think I probably have 14 Gretsch kits. 
the other day and you know three or four of them are vintage and they have been paired with anything that zildjian makes that is reminiscent of a sort of the golden era of zildjian to me and one of the reasons i wanted to ask you about this as well is because i keep hearing broadcaster kits and yeah. the, the the sound recorded is like sensational there yeah the gretsch broadcaster i think is the best sounding recording drum set that that i own and that they make and uh, usa customs are excellent live okay a, i mean they record really well don't get me wrong uh i think for me they require a tad bit more dampening the usa customs sure. because the edges and the maple gum are just a little livelier and so overtones and like phase issues and everything is is more easily controlled if they're a little focused if they're a little more focused so um the the attack is a, is brilliant in the live setting i love how much more presence that they have the usa customs Gr the broadcasters are also great live but for for recording and where i tune my tuning range i think the broadcasters are the best sounding drums that you could possibly have do, do you have the vintage build with the, the the internal dampers and yeah so my kits are all specked out exactly the same i use inter <laughs> i use internal felts on the bass drums mm -hmm. front and batter and i use internal dampeners on the top and bottom of my toms mm -hmm. i don't always use them but sometimes i need to just dial a little bit like barely touch the bottom head because you know when you hit a bass drum sometimes the floor tom as you know will react it'll resonate so by by just a tiny bit of dampening on the bottom head as long as you don't choke the drum it's really handy and i was talking about this with gretch just the other day like can you think of another company that offers a drum set with internal tone control top and bottom as well as a bass drum with the quality of sound that gretch offers no uh i can't i've just i've tried to rack my brain even if there's like smaller more independent companies but none of the commercial brands do it and no. all the 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 main the main commercial brands are all about they're actually all about is making the drums as resonant as they can make them well i get that if mm -hmm. all you're doing is drums but if you're an engineer and you or a mix guy and you're trying to like like build a mix where frequencies aren't competing like the extra resonance like drums by themselves great sing for days go for it <laughs> but when you've got, when you've got a bass you've got a synth bass you've got a muddy piano you've got three guitars you've got an acoustic you've got harmonies when you're stacking all these different frequencies and putting them into a stereo mix like it's it, in order for it to make sense and not be like muddy and built up each of those frequencies needs to make room for each other so the bass guitar if it's competing with say a double-headed open bass drum and a floor tom that's wide open and tuned that is a mess <laughs> like trying to trying to pick out like what the bass player is doing and what the toms are doing and everything it doesn't work so in other words you got to think about it like an assembly of people all right do you want to be you know shouldered like your arms bleeding into other people's space or do you want to be able to make out the profile of everybody 
sitting in the assembly. So the drums have such a broad range, obviously, of sonic spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. You've got you've got the absolute top of what people are hearing. No one hears a frequency from an instrument higher than your cymbals, no, right? No. And your bass drum is at the absolute bottom. It's below the bass player. But then there's everywhere in between. Your snare drum occupies from 200 hertz to, to 4,000 kilohertz, right? And so when you start to stack, like I said, multiple frequencies from different sources and they're slightly off or they're overlapping each other, sound is an absolute mess. That's not how great records are mixed. Yeah. So Gretsch being able to offer tone control top and bottom of heads like adjust to taste same thing with the bass drum like i use i use kick pro pillows okay. um bass drum because i like the additional weight of them it does something to the the actual density of the note dries up the bass drum a little bit more but i use those as well as a little bit of felt on both heads mm -hmm. to get the sound that i want um and again, it's all dependent on the song. Sometimes I have a, like I have a twenty-six by eight bass drum, two <laughs> two solid heads. I played that on a track yesterday, and I wanted the note to last for two bars. Mm -hmm. I wanted that, and I also knew that the bass player was playing a super dry sound, so we weren't in competition mm -hmm. or using dry sound. But we all need to fit together, right? Sonically, mm -hmm. more than anything. So. Gretsch drums like do that quite naturally, depending on the series you get, uh, but like how you tune and how you play them, but having all that tone control, that's why I play that instrument. That's why this is my, my choice, you know? Where do you cut? Do you come down on the fence of drilled bass drum versus undrilled bass drum, all of that stuff? Do you care enough about it or what's the story? Well, obviously you care enough about it because you, you care about all of it, but... <laughs> okay see that's what i think right for those no, that are no. just listening jason just turned his camera to show us that he has a kick drum drilled with the the um the tom mount on the bass drum so, so for me i'm always going to err on um a drier drum sound than a wide open one for me the the era of rims mounts and like everything being wide open was a was a thing that worked for a while but i don't that's not my choice anymore it doesn't i don't think that that is as popular people most people want to hear much drier sounds mm -hmm. drier more sounds and a lot of that stems from you know us being very much an era for the past two decades of programming mm -hmm. You know, like people using samples and sounds that have like very well curated and perfectly trimmed and they can adjust the length and the note duration so that nothing's ever a problem but when you show up with a wide open drum kit you can't do that after the fact mm. without destroying your drum sound mm -hmm. you know that's when you end up using a bunch of really unmusical gates and so forth mm -hmm. whereas if you show up with a slightly dry drum kit you can always add reverb mm -hmm. you can add individual reverb on a tom or a snare drum or a bass drum or you can add full kit reverb or room sound with extra mics that are further away you can always add to the length of your drum sound but it's really hard to naturally take away from it mm -hmm. so having a bass drum mount in the bass drum and a tom mounted off of a post dries those things up mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the the rack tom is far more focused and stable in terms of playing than if it were on a rims mount or some kind of suspended system off of a simple stand. Mm -hmm. I don't like palms bouncing around when I'm playing. 
And if you look at old footage of John Bonham, he had, because he had such a big rack tom, either 15 or 14 inches, he had most of the time a, 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 a tom mounted to the bass drum with a snare drum basket underneath it. Mm -hmm. He used both. Um, but I, like I said, I, I think that a more focused drum sound allows you to have better control of dynamics, hear more articulation, and be able to add something more naturally than have to take it away. Because a gate is not a very natural sound no. when it comes, but you know, reverb is. Sure. Do you think it adds weight to the bass drum as well? Mounting something on the top of it yeah. lowers I mean, the pitch. I, some 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 old guy like hit me to um, a bass drum sound. I don't know if they did it at at stacks or if they did it at Muscle Shoals, but somebody years ago introduced me to sandbagging your bass drum, which is like. <laughs> putting weight on top of the shell mm -hmm. which helps dries up and sort of compresses and focuses and out you should try it sometime i mean as long as you're not worried about crushing your shell but <laughs> even if you like have somebody lean on your bass drum while you're playing it mm -hmm. the tonality is, it's a crazy change right so um i do think i i enjoy the weight also like in practical terms like it's just less stands on yeah, the right. floor, yeah. and you, if you're if you're a clubbing drummer, you just pick them up and move them off stage. And mm -hmm. I mean, I I don't think that a cymbal mounted off of the bass drum is as cool as a cymbal on a stand. Yeah. But I have done it. I've all done it. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, we could we could talk gear for hours about yeah. the weight of cymbal stands and how that affects cymbals, the weight of a hi hat clutch and how that affects the yeah. sound of your hi hat like it's all minutiae but it it does make a difference in how i play and how i feel as a player i think the the difference for me is when you're being creative versus when you are a jobbing player i think that stuff matters more when you're being creative than when you're jobbing just i mean a wedding gig for us is like four hours of playing it's like three and a half hours of playing so you turn up you start at 8 p.m you have a break at 9 30 you play from 10 till 12 so whatever gets you through and whatever works really for a lot of people is kind of where it's at yeah but i get that if you've got two microphones on the hi-hat because of how you want to record it then yeah absolutely getting into the clutch and the felt and whether or not you have sim pads versus actual felts is going to change it yeah, but isn't it amazing how in the past, you know, 10 to 15 years, how those little things like sim pads, you know, or, you know, the weight of a clutch or the big fat snare drum mm -hmm. world overlays and uh, snare weights. And like, I, I mean, I, when snare weights came out, I thought it was witchcraft. Like, what are we doing, really? And then I tried one. I was like, oh, okay. I absolutely get it. You know, because you just see them and you're like, is this just one of these fashion things? But I absolutely am sold, you know, tremendous. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Like somebody also pointed out to me the other day, like, like if you're a professional guitar player, there's not a single guitar player out there that like gets a guitar from the factory and just takes it on stage right. and plays it. Yeah, they get set up, they get gone through. Mm -hmm. You know, things get filed down. They adjust them to the players. They select the weight of the strings. Right? There's so many steps that you take. Why would drummers not do the same thing? <laughs> Why would you? You know how many drummers play everything out of the box for their gig for the rest of their career you know it doesn't happen that way so all the accoutrements and like treatment and like whatever you got to do to get the vibe 
to get you to feel like what you're contributing is the right thing. And I've I've always been a firm believer that if what you're playing doesn't convince you it's the right choice, there's no way that you're going <laughs> to convince the other players of the room that it's the right choice. That being said, I have found myself playing certain things in the studio where I'm like, are you sure? Someone is like, trust me, wait till you come in and hear it. And then I go in the control room and listen to a reference and I'm like, now I'm convinced. Now I get it. And then I, and then I, you know, I go along with it, but yeah, you gotta, you gotta drive differently, you know, for every song. Well, we'll, we'll wrap it up after this one, but for like, for like two in life, if you can't get what's on your rider, now I'm pretty sure you get what's on your rider, but like you're in a territory where they don't have high end Gretsch available or something along those lines would, what would you do in that situation? Um, well, I'm very fortunate that I can take whatever drum set I want. Where I go. It's very rarely that I have to backline. Mm -hmm. But something that I um, learned years ago when I taught uh, really regularly at the Seattle Drum School was when I showed up, I was given whatever room was available. Mm -hmm. Whatever room was available might have been a dozen rooms. They all had different drum sets, and most of them were in pretty sad shape because of everybody <laughs> coming and going all the time. And a school, you know, a small school like that at the time, it was small. It didn't. They didn't have a tech that was coming through and replacing heads. Mm -hmm. So basically, you get what you can get. Pitted heads, weird sizes, you know, <laughs> snare drum stands that were taped up, so you had to play them at the height they were at, whatever. But I really learned to embrace those situations as like a. <clears throat> Cool. this is my sound today and guess what it brings different things out of me so whenever i have to play a backline kit i really celebrate what that kit is mm -hmm. and like what it offers, like how it's changed it's been a long time since i've had something that i've complained about mm -hmm. you know like this snare drum is so whacked like this is broken because even even these days like that can happen to me but unless it's something like uh, the bass drum pedal is broken, <laughs> I think as long as the drum is playable, mm -hmm. it's tonality, it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. in, a, in a live setting. Even in a studio setting, sometimes showing up and like playing what's offered can draw more out of you as a musician than if you were to show up with something that you're familiar with. Mm. So that being said that kind of comes full circle to the start of this conversation is like you need to make yourself malleable you need to be adaptable to whatever the situation is as a student as a player as a as a jobbing drummer you know as a as a festival fill-in as a hired gun whatever it is uh you should just buckle up and and embrace what it is we get to do because that's how you have longevity not complaining or saying that you can't do your job without some specific tool like it, it's all rhythm it comes through us we need to emotionally convey what we're feeling the best way possible beautiful beautiful well thank you man thank you very much for coming on um as i thought it would be it was like pretty enlightening lesson again like watching you play it's just it's, it's been a, a, a real treat to get to talk to someone like you so i really appreciate you taking the time out your day to do that thanks for listening to this episode of the drummers only podcast please leave us a review and make sure you subscribe 
If you need any more information about us or any gear mentioned, head on over to drummersonly.co.uk and make sure you follow us on all of our social channels at drummersonlyuk. Thanks for listening. Peace.